Thanks for joining us for the Bridges Across Every Divide podcast. As a special treat, there's a hidden teaser in each and every title of the podcast and try to guess what it is. In today's installment, titled Tomorrow is Another Day, what makes Bridges Out of Poverty work, in your opinion, Phil? What makes it so optimistic? And why do people from the right and the left everywhere seem to immediately, be, as they explain to them, gravitate towards? So explain it just a little bit to us here. Okay. Well, uh, Bridges is uh, evolved over 20 years. So it started out with one book called Bridges Out of Poverty that is usually used by people that work in organizations, whether they're government or nonprofit, faith-based, to learn about poverty issues and class issues. And, uh, and then we needed a book and we needed to have a way to engage people in poverty. So I, I wrote a book called Getting Ahead in a Just Getting By World. And uh, 12 people at a time, typically, with a facilitator, go through 16 sessions together, and they analyze the impact that poverty has on them and their community, at the end of which, the studies show that they take charge of their lives, they create what we call a future story, they have smart goals and detailed lists about what they want to do, they have a team of people to support them. Now, that means that people that are serving people in poverty and working with them and the people in poverty have a common language. Then for community leaders, CEOs, legislators, and the like, there's a book called Bridges to Sustainable Communities. So they get the language. So now the whole community has a common way of looking at this complex issue. And uh, to, But to answer your direct question, how do we get people from the left and right into this? One of the things that we all look at in those different books is uh, the four causes of poverty, and it's not just two. And of those four causes, there's one that the conservatives pay attention to, which is individual choice, behavior, circumstances, and responsibility. And then the one that the liberals look for and their think tanks are creating is um, the social, economic, political structures that lead to poverty. And those turn into the either-or debates of today. Those are the narratives that we hear all the time, and that's how they pass policy. And what we're saying is that it's not either or. It's actually true that poverty is caused by the choices of the individuals and their circumstances, and poverty is caused by political economic structures. So we come at it from both ends, and we honor the research on both sides. We also discovered that there is uh, causes of poverty that have to do with where you live. And poverty is different in every city, county, state. Um, and some places, upper mobility is easier than others. And poverty in you know the small counties out there in northeastern Colorado, it's going to be harder to get out of poverty there than it is in some uh, place like Columbus, Ohio, or uh, you know one of the eastern cities where the resources are all around and opportunities are everywhere. So where you live matters. And then the fourth category is how much exploitation are people facing that are in poverty? And it's so prominent that it's actually a cause of poverty and not just a factor. So we say, if you want to address poverty, you have to address all four causes. You can't just ask individuals to make all the changes on their own. You have to address systemic stuff and you have to address where the issues in the community and exploitation. You have to do it all. And when you mention about geography, it reminds me, of course, of the prisoners of geography. Um, uh, and that, you know, because we are now seeing increasingly um, uh, the, the three classes are being concentrated 
Um, the ruling elite is behind um, gates and walled communities. Uh, the, the middle class lives in cul-de-sacs. And the poor and working poor increasingly isolated in, in uh, yep. areas of the urban center that um, uh, they are dependent completely upon mass transit there. And uh, other places, it's isolated, you know, areas in the rural outreach. And um, this has led to, I mean, we have this idealized golden age of America that the bank president lived three blocks away from the bank janitor. Their kids went to the same school. And that meant then if that if if uh, if one of the janitor's kids could get a, need a letter of recommendation to get into a university or college, why the bank president who might be on the board of that college could write such a letter for the child of the janitor and all this soft social capital right. as outlined by our kids Robert in Robert Putnam's book allowed the the classes to mix and everything. Now people live isolated That's right. from those not like themselves, and we are doing it politically on the basis of religion. Um, we don't like saying with people who are of the what I call the unfamiliar visage, people who do not look just like us. And this is leading to a whole lot of political, unnecessary political strife, and we're not able to talk to each other. And the thing I have found most interesting is that the bridges model allows, gives a mechanism to begin to go ahead and get these three classes, the ruling elite, the middle class, and the poor and working poor, begin to have a way to communicate to each other and to have things to talk about. That's right. I, I think that, you know, our book is called Bridges Across Every Divide, which is a pretty ambitious thing to say in this time and age. And yet, when you go to the communities where this is happening, you're going to see people that come together and all the social divides are there around issues of guns, uh, women's rights, abortion, you name it. All that is in these people that are there. But one thing they all have in common is, and we know this, people that are conservative care about poverty. Yes. People who are liberal care about poverty. And so now we have a thing we work on together. And when we meet each other then we can actually create that sense of community that's gone away. Yes. And we can work together. And the beauty of this is that we, we can show you where it's happening. And it gives people goosebumps to know that that is still a possibility for people to come together to solve problems together. And in the book, Bridges Across Every Divide, we actually describe a process or actually several different methodologies by which people can get together uh, with those not like themselves very purposely. And that's going to require a purposeful act by people in order to do. But if they don't do that, then you know this is why I think one of the major reasons why the republic simply is no longer working as our founders envisioned. This is not the republic they were looking for. And it's just not, it's too contentious and everything. Um, Henry Adams, who is the grandson of a president and the great-grandson of a U.S. president, in his seminal work, The Education of Henry Adams, said, uh, politics is how we organize our hatreds, which I think is something you and I in the in the book, 
you know, completely disagree with, reject, and show the basis of how you too can reject the organization of hatreds as how we do our politics in America, because that is a zero-sum game. Now, I will cut Henry Adams a little bit of slack because he was born in 1838. So for him, the Civil War was the defining moment of his young life. And that, of course, covered how he saw everything. But I think that we completely stomp on Henry Adams in the book and give people an alternative to organizing on the basis of hatreds. Yeah. So, um, you know, and one of the things that rings me up with that is, of course, you know, we're talking about getting people, you know, of different, you know, different classes together, different cultures, different backgrounds and everything. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about silos. Well, I think the thing we agree upon, the only place silos should be is on America's farms. And we have too many silos. If you look at how um, uh, the whole, you know, human services are delivered. There's way too many silos. Um, agency time, you know, is a huge concern. And that, for me, was one of the things that you really enlightened me on. Because you talk a little bit about the horrors of agency time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, uh, when, when I uh, was working on what turned out to be the book, Getting Ahead and Just Getting By World, I uh, was in Mount Vernon, Ohio, which is uh, close to where I I live, and uh, we paid people to come to a restaurant. And uh, the very first time I met with them, I put out some flip chart paper on the table, and I said, uh, "What what's poverty like in Knox County? And uh, they just began to pour out the ideas. And uh, one of those phrases was agency time. And I'm, I was going to, so what's that? And they knew that I ran an agency. I spent 19 years in the addiction field running an agency. And they said, well, you know, it's like the agency you run. You know, we have to go to all these agencies and everywhere we go to get things that are required of us and things we need in order to survive, end up wanting us to change the way we think and behave. And we have all these plans. We walk around with plans from every place. And we spend so much time going from place to place and telling our story again and again at every one of these places and nothing is coordinated, and everything takes extra time. It's just a hassle on top of a hassle. And boy, that resonated with me. So, uh, you know, that that gives us, we need to listen to the people that are in poverty. They need to be at the planning and decision-making tables because they know what it's like. And when we dream up strategies, those of us that are middle-class and live in secure, predictable environments, and we're trying to design programs for people that, that are living in poverty. We, we really need, and this is what we do in, in our work, is we get all classes together. And they're all problem solvers. People in poverty are problem solvers. The middle class obviously are, and the wealthy folks are. The one we've been leaving out all this time are the folks in poverty. And when they join the conversation, it changes relationships and it changes the design of, of what we do. You know, it is, it, it struck me, you know, and um, um, I'm going to steal a phrase that we use in the book uh, from a staffer of um, former state representative Tim Derrickson, Bree Lushek, who said that as a staffer, you need to extend your ear to listen and you're talking here about much the same thing. And the thing that it struck me when you and I were um, going through all this is the fact that, um, uh, how do I want to put this? 
we have, we, the, the middle class, the bourgeois, the ruling elite, have all these grand ideas about how to fix poverty. But we never actually ask the poor people, those who are in poverty, those who are living the lives of quiet desperation, how is your life? What could we do to make things better? How do we get you up that economic ladder? What do you need to have? And it's just one of those things. So I bring this up to policy folks and they go, oh, uh, well, yeah, we, um, um, no, we never really have thought about that. But this, I think this is becoming a bigger problem now because we were in America's idealized golden age. Everybody knew people above them on and below them on the economic ladder. Okay. Now, because of how we live, Nobody knows that many people different than them. Yeah. You know, the kids now are being raised, especially if you look around, you know, the various suburbs and everything. They just simply, the children of the middle class really don't know anybody. And um, for, the, for the children of the ruling elite, the only time they see poor people is when they volunteer at a food bank to go ahead and fluff up their college application. Okay. Um, this is, it's just getting, we just don't know how to relate to people anymore. Yeah. I, I think that if uh, we, we create what we call mental models of poverty, middle class and wealth and define what those environments are like, because they're so different. And we just acknowledge that problem. It's a reality. And then we learn about the hidden rules that come to survive in each one of those. Right. So in poverty, there's rules of survival that are very different than they are in middle class and wealth. And our institutions of the land are based on middle-class rules. So uh, this gives us a language. So the middle-class rules with the rules. Yes. Yeah. So th uh, doing this allows us across class lines to let go of our judgmentalness and begin to have a better understanding of one another. So if we understand each other's environments, we understand each other's hidden rules, we understand that the causes of poverty are complex— we now have a deeper and deeper understanding of these issues of class and economic well-being. And that brings us together, gives us a chance to, uh, gives us a language. So our common language gives us uh, thinking tools, I call them, and, um, and ways of bringing people from all classes, all races, all political persuasions, and all sectors to uh, work on these strategies. And uh, we haven't talked about the institutional level, right. but uh, institutions can use these ideas too, you know, to to make changes so that they get better outcomes. So you'd want them to have better outcomes with people that are coming through their system or working in their plant, right? But you also want to have better outcomes for the institutions. And we're finding that people use our ideas and innovate with them, and it all benefits people in poverty. And, you know, the, the thing that has me in a state of, shall we say, mild panic about all this is that it, we have traditionally in the Western developed world used um, uh, no and low skilled manufacturing jobs as a way to move the poor and working poor up the economic ladder so that especially so that their children have the economic stability so they can now get more education, they go to college, achieve greater trainings and stuff of that nature. Um, studies by MIT indicate that in um, just a few short, by 2030, 
47% of the jobs that are out there right now are going to evaporate like rain on asphalt in a hot day. Um, we're looking at these massive disruptions occurring um, that, and it's, you know, and people will say, well, it's due to this, it's due to that. Uh, for example, 88%, Ball State has found out that 88% of um, job losses in the past 30 years have occurred um, due to automation. And here's another surprising statistic for people. There is more steel manufactured today in America than there was in 1980. Okay. And it's because of automation. And now we're getting ready for the next wave, which is artificial intelligence. So it used to be that, oh, well, I'm a lawyer. I don't need to ever worry about, you know, automation. Well, guess what? Artificial intelligence is now coming for you. And the ability to sort through and do routine contracts and routine forms is now increasingly being delegated. They've now come up with artificial intelligence that actually reads x-rays better than radiologists. A lower level of, of, um, of failure. And so, we, you know, uh, radiologists may someday only be able to find jobs working on organic farms somewhere, you know, as, as a field hand. I mean, yeah. this is this is everything right. is in the middle of a huge flux and we have to figure this out soon. Right. I, I agree. There's a real urgency about this. And it it has to do with the tsunami that we're in already. So. The good middle-class jobs where you went to work and you could climb the ladder, you belonged and you were part of the creation of things and, you know, you had security. Those jobs are going away. And now there's all these temp jobs, gig jobs, subcontract jobs, contract jobs, where you're not a full-time employee. And so you don't have the benefits. You don't feel like you belong. And and this is what, when, when we have people that are coming into our groups for getting ahead, when they want to get out of poverty, they have they're in poverty or situational poverty. Above them is this layer of the working poor, right? And working class people who can't find $500 for an emergency. And 78% of us are working paycheck to paycheck. And we're trying to bring people out of poverty into that and through it into some kind of stable environment. That's why this is a crucial community issue. And something the legislators have to attend to because is that urgent. And we're at a tipping point. One of the things we look at in the book is also a lot about groupthink and how groupthink can invade corporations. And I'm always reminded of um, Xerox uh, or it was Polaroid who said, oh, no, uh, digital cameras. No, everybody's going to want to use paper. And they went from being a dominant major employer to all of a sudden, 10 years later, just being, you know, parceled off for parts, basically. Uh, and one of the things we found in our research is that um, companies that are uh, employee share ownership um, uh, uh, plans or worker cooperatives seem to be more resilient and more resistant, shall we say, to the group think that invades the corner offices, where they're all going to do this, we're all going to do that. And they seem to be more adaptive to changing environments. And it's been a real it's been a real eye-opener on this. So there are opportunities out there, and the book goes into those in some details, how to recognize them. So uh, well, with that, we should probably go ahead and close up uh, this podcast of uh, for the Bridges Across Every Divide podcast. 
um, and uh, we ask you to um, uh, look for the book, um, find it on Amazon and order it and uh, look forward and reach out to Phil or myself and we'll be happy to come to your community and talk to you all about it and just contact AHA process for arranging that. So thank you very much.